Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy, and today we're talking about those communities where somebody shouts out, that's unethical, when it's really not an ethics thing whatsoever. We've had some discussions around this. Part of this comes from our good friend over at psychotherapynotes.com, Ben Caldwell, a very, very small snippet of an article that he wrote several years ago. And he basically said that some therapists start this with just calling things unethical because it's just something that they disagree with. Yeah, yeah. I think it's something that's really interesting because it feels like we can't do something if we believe it's unethical, but there's other reasons why we shouldn't do things. <laughs> so we don't have to call them unethical. I don't know why that's the go-to. What do you, why do you think that's the go-to? Well, I think that it helps us to take a step back. And what Katie and I have done is we've identified that there's seemingly four parts that things fall under. There's four categories. We're loosely labeling those or I guess not so loosely. Uh, very specifically labeling them. <laughs> very specifically labeling. There's the legal category. That's the codified laws, the things that have gone through either a local or a state or a national legislative body. There's the ethics that are outlined in the ethical codes of organizations and seem to be the group rules and behaviors that a group defines and lives by. And that can also be pretty codified, but it, it can also feel a little bit more culturally bound. There's things that people will say and do that are that become, you know, kind of it's that that standard of what a typical therapist would do in this situation. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Third, there's clinically relevant things. So this might fall under clinical theory. It might fall under what is best for the client and might come up in a little bit later on in the episode as far as things that might fall under this. And then fourth, and this is something that Katie and I have realized kind of fits the overall theme of our entire podcast here. <laughs> and that is the personal values and the personal morals that people have. And when we see some people say that's unethical, it's really when they're saying that these things don't fit with my personal morals. And it can also be they don't fit with how I view what should be done. Because I actually think, I don't know that there's another category, but when I think about it, there's the things that I think are morally correct, 
But there's also things that I think are the way they should be. And I don't know if that lines up with clinical or ethical, the things that I've been trained forever. But oftentimes it can be, this is the way it's always been done. And so if you talk about doing it a different way, it can feel, oh, that's just too uncomfortable. It doesn't line up with my morals. Maybe it doesn't line up with my ex ethics, maybe, or whatever, but it can be something where, but we've always done it this way. You can't do it a different way. That's unethical. <laughs> I'm a part of a number of therapists, Facebook groups, LinkedIn groups, and make a habit of, and especially the legal categories of ensuring that if I'm citing something or making a claim of an understanding of a legal knowledge, that I will put hashtag cite the statute, and I will post a link to the relevant legal code that I'm citing. This is something that I do in order to help make the arguments or the discussions come more to a point. When it comes to ethics stuff, if somebody is making a claim of, hey, that's an ethics issue, or that's unethical, I'll ask people, what ethics are you citing here? And yeah. most of the time, the response back to me is, well, I guess if it's not in the ethics code, you can do anything you want. <laughs> it's a very emotional issue, right? I think people feel very strongly about what should and shouldn't be done. And I think it's good that we listen to our emotions, but I think we need to also be really thoughtful and not just come from an emotional place, but you know, kind of the DBT wise mind. We need to know what's actually codified, where we're getting the, the guidance from? Is it from our morals? Is it from the way it's always been done? Is it from actual codified laws and ethics? But I think we do want to be able to trust our instincts and include the emotional aspect. But I think we can't just go from an emotional place of, well, but I just, uh, uh, but that's just how it's always, you know, like we can't just get to this place where we're not being conscious about why we're doing the things we're doing. And so I think, it, I think I'm looking forward to kind of digging into this conversation about how we sort through it, because I think oftentimes people will get flustered, they'll get emotional, and then they'll, they'll back away from these conversations. And I think these are important conversations to have. I think that oftentimes if we don't have these conversations, we do stick in stagnant ideas. We do things that fit with laws and ethics that maybe are outdated. And so I think it, it's important to be conscious about where things are to identify what do we do and what do we need to change? Because I think that's interesting too. This is the really interesting part and a number of the different hats that I wear, whether it's this podcast, whether it's when I'm working on writing the legal and ethical questions for the state licensing test here in California, whether it's my work in the various professional organizations, whether it's teaching master's level students, that there is a lot of this discussion around ethics and what we're supposed to do and how those relate either to the law or to clinical outcomes. And there's a lot of times where we would like all of those things to line up, those four categories to just stack right on top of each other and have the laws and the ethics and the personal values and the clinical relevance all be the same answer. And yeah. what happens is most of the time, that's how master's level test questions are written is here's a nice, easy package of everything stacking up do this nice ethical thing that's clearly defined with a clearly defined legal thing. However, in practice, ethics change over time. And sometimes for good reason to really look at incorporating technology. And I think that the NASW codes over the last couple of years have done a lot better job of 
embracing technology as a viable source of providing social work. I think sometimes they're done in reaction to things where there was a hole in being able to look at things. And the one that most notably comes to mind for me on this is the APA revising their ethics codes after the psychologists were helping the Department of Defense and the CIA torture war criminals. So yes, these things can change over time. They don't necessarily change very quickly because a lot of us who enter into this profession follow in the footsteps of those of us who have been in the profession before. And looking at challenging them as how society changes makes them change a lot more slowly. I agree. I think we don't change rapidly, but I think there's also times when laws will drastically change based on the federal administration or in reaction to things like psychologists torturing people. I think laws and ethics oftentimes both are in flux and moving. And so when we say that's unethical, it might be unethical from when our training happened. It might be unethical now. It might be something that we feel should be in the ethics code, but isn't yet. It is hard to to sort through and it's hard to have really big change. And I think in making decisions when things are in the gray, I think there's almost in, in some sense a need for a hierarchy because they don't all stack beautifully up all the time. The law says, you know, I need to do this type of, of a report. The ethics say I need to make sure that I'm understanding the safety of my client as well as maintaining the therapeutic relationship. The clinical says I need to be working towards their best interests and helping them to move forward. And my morals say that I need to not participate in anything that's going to go against what I believe in and what I value. And those can get really muddy very quickly when there's a very complicated situation where where something happens. I mean, at no time are Kurt and I are going to say like, hey, you should break the law or not follow the ethics code. That's not what we're saying. But but the complexity of working with teens when you know that a 13-year-old and a 14-year-old, at least in California, if they're having sex, you have to report that as child abuse and the 14-year-old could become a, a sex offender. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, And I think that's, that becomes very complex. I mean, there's some, some laws that really make it very difficult to make some of these decisions because clinically supporting the ongoing relationship in that therapeutic relationship and helping those, those kids to, you know, whichever one is your client to continue to move forward. is huge ethically trying to sustain the relationship and make sure that they're getting the help they need is important, but legally you got to report. And so it's this, this thing of how do you sort through all of this stuff and make sure that you're making decisions that you can live with and that are actually going to be in the best interest of the client. Thrizer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thrizer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thrizer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thrizer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thrizer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thrizer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. 
Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. I'm remembering a class that I was teaching where the reading materials and the quiz materials were already created for me ahead of time. So I was teaching on somebody else's curriculum and somebody else's syllabus. And during a section on HIPAA, some of the quiz questions were, what do you do in the event that HIPAA conflicts with state laws? And the next question is, what do you do if HIPAA conflicts with the ethics codes? And I was really shocked that the assigned answers were, contact your licensing board or contact your professional organization to see what you should do. And I'm not going to get into the, the details of HIPAA, but it seemed so confusing that there's so much about privacy in the legal aspects that says, go and call your licensing board. Because I can tell you, when I've called my licensing board, it's been days or weeks before I hear <laughs> back from them. <laughs> Yeah, the licensing board isn't necessarily set up to to respond to those types of inquiries that quickly. And my point in bringing this up is that there's a flaw in kind of these disparate parts of the whole, these four categories that go together that really are only concerned about their singular aspect. Our licensing board is concerned about the therapist finding the legal pathway to do things that are correct. The and consumer and, protection. And consumer right? protection. And, and that's, sure. you know, really where their law's aim is for protecting consumers. Mm-hmm. They don't care if you're doing that psychodynamically or CBT or EMDR. They don't care in that clinical piece. The ethics yes. committees <laughs> like you to follow the law, but they don't necessarily tread into that clinical piece either, as long as it's grounded in something that's scientifically based. With the ethics committees, would they, if something legal conflicted with an ethic, what would they do with that? I mean, do they have the same sort of challenge? I mean, if legally we can do something that that really feels unethical, like, you know, for a while torturing, you know, people for psychologists, like, do they then, are they a mechanism for saying like, hey, the law, just because you can legally do it doesn't mean it's ethical? I think that we have an entire episode on loopholes in the ethics codes, but the, the positive answer <laughs> okay. to your question, we will, we will definitely be expanding on this particular point because there are giant loopholes that still exist in some of the ethics codes. But the positive side of this is that the ethics do hold us to a higher accountability than other professions. And so they're going to say, if you can't follow the law, that's probably an ethics violation. If you look at mm. the disciplinary actions of whatever licensing board that you have, you're going to consistently see people getting in trouble for drinking and driving or stealing or things that therapists probably shouldn't be doing that are Mm -hmm. against the legal code that don't necessarily need to be making an ethics code even longer. You know, if we had to list all of the legal statutes into the ethics codes, then those would be kind of ridiculous to follow. (laughs) But I do want to bring this back to that point of there's also the human part of this, that individual aspect too, that's going to vary wildly from not only your own personal background, but the environment that you work in. 
that Katie brought up working with teenagers and especially in like a outpatient private practice like mine, things are going to look wildly different than if I'm a therapist who's working as a caseworker for child protective services or as a therapist working in the jails, that the personal values and morals are going to change wildly depending on who the clients are. And I can even say that that's kind of true even within my practice of some clients will get to see more of me than others because of concerns about their clinical issues. And so there really is an interplay between all of these that's on a very, very case-by-case basis. But in presenting small chunks of information, somebody's reaction is always going to be, well, that's unethical or that's illegal based on the situation. I hope that the legal ones are pretty obvious to a lot of people. But when we take the legal aspect out, those other three kind of interplaying together, something can be maybe unethical, but really relevant clinically. Like what? You're going to ask that. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think about the clinical and ethical related to child abuse reporting, because I think that there's times when it's very difficult to comply with the laws and the ethics around child abuse reporting. But do you have other thoughts? Because I think that there's oftentimes people will say, well, if it's unethical, how would it be clinically relevant? The one that comes to mind is gift giving. Mm. I mean, there's, there's plenty more, but some ethics codes don't even say that accepting gifts from clients is unethical. You're mm. clinically taught that you should evaluate it and that you're clinically taught that it might mean something more to the client. But the ethics code, it might not say anything at all about gifts. Got it. And I think that's one that a lot of people go to. I mean, certainly if it creates a dual relationship or if there's these bigger pieces, it could go into a different ethic. And and even the ethics say that not all dual relationships are bad, but I think there's this idea and, and we do have a whole episode on dual relationships, whether they're good or bad or pros and cons. But I think that there's this idea that anything that feels gray and that could be clinically challenging to deal with, I think people will go to, well, that's unethical. It's kind of like, that's territory I don't want to to even walk into. I'm not going to accept any gifts. I'm not going to entertain any kind of dual relationships. I'm not going to do any of that stuff without really looking at the complexity of the situation. And in truth, for me, it seems like that's a good place for very new clinicians to start. Really, really set the boundary and then start looking at where can you move the boundary in a little bit or move it out a little bit. But I think it just kind of blanket saying it's unethical really simplifies it far too much for clinicians who are ready to dig deeper into some of these gray areas to to have more, uh, I don't know what the right word is, more uh, fulfilling therapeutic relationships. There's plenty of other things that are going to continue to come up, I think, in the prevalence of social media, online dating apps. I mean, we've hit on some of these in our previous episodes, and we'll include links to those in the show notes. And you can go back to each of these episodes there. But I've heard people say that therapists shouldn't app date and you know, it's unethical to be on an app dating site. What if a client sees you there? And I've seen other therapists <laughs> and Lynn Umo, who was our guest on that dating as a therapist episode, it was very open about it. it worked for a while. It didn't. I asked and she's probably, if she's ever back into the dating sort of situation like that, might even <laughs> include it in her informed consent. So these are things that, as far as I'm aware of, there's nothing in any ethics code that says 
don't go on app dating sites. Or don't do social media or don't, you know, don't get a post with you with a glass of wine. Like I think there is this really hard line opinion that therapists have to be above reproach. They can't be human beings. And and we've talked about this a lot, but I think it's not an ethical thing. I think it is. it can be material that is rich for a clinical conversation should a client see you in some of these other arenas and, and that kind of stuff. And actually, incidentally, I, I hadn't told you this yet, but I was having coffee with one of our listeners and she was talking about the dating app. And she's like, I have actually seen clients on or parents of clients on these apps. And I have interacted with people out in the world. And it's it's something that you can't avoid and kind of talking through how she handled that. And it is, it's either kind of allowing them to take the lead or it's a, directly addressing it. And so it's complex but it isn't unethical. And that's something where being able to identify just because it makes you uncomfortable, just because it's complex, isn't a sign that it's a red flag. It's hard for a lot of therapists to sit with. If we really go to the overarching theme of our show here, the one of these four things that you have the most control over, you as the individual, is your individual values. That can inform your interpretation of the law. That can inform your interpretation of the ethics. It can inform your clinical interpretations. But it's being able to be aware of what your morals are, what your values are, and how it does affect those. And as Katie and I talk about in the Brand Called You episode, it's being able to embrace them in a way that advertises who you are. So that way it can help clients be informed about it too. It's being able to look at where your limitations are on the opposite end. In that episode, we talk a lot about how to embrace them for the positive, but it's also being able to look at where your limitations are in this kind of supportive situation. That if you're a community-based therapist who is very much about not extending out anything about your personality, in some communities, that can be seen as being very arrogant or very cold and things that are not intended to be in those types of positions. Yeah, I I think there's a lot of different pieces because I think some of that is more clinical, obviously, how you set up your therapeutic relationships. And we do have an episode on that. Like we're like totally just (laughs) dropping all of our episode names. But when you were talking, I just want to circle to something is when you were talking about kind of the morals piece, I think about some of the you know, even Supreme Court cases around can someone refuse clients or or refuse to make a cake, for example, because of their morals and values. And I think that's something that we've had to address before. I mean, in our live workshop on The Brand Called You, there was a lot of people who were getting very upset, kind of like, I have to take clients because there's the laws and the ethics says that you have to make treatment accessible. You can't refuse a certain segment of the population. And some people are arguing, if I religiously disagree, agree with what somebody's dealing with. I shouldn't have to treat them or I shouldn't have to serve them. And that's not the case here. Like you, you do have to be available, but clinically it probably isn't the best match. One of the best ways to protect yourself through this is to be a part of consultation groups. It is to be involved in your communities, to be involved in your therapist associations, to have these conversations out loud. And even if you're wrong in the conversations or if somebody is wrong in the group, at least they're doing it in an environment where there's an opportunity to learn or an opportunity to move the discussion forward. It's convenient to be in some of the online groups, but some of the groups are 
going to be populated with members who are only ever going to read in their own voice, that they're going to assume an emotion or assume an intentionality of what you're saying. But really having a consistent group of people that you turn to for consultations, for being able to look at things moving forward is one of your best bets. So that way you're not left making decisions completely on your own. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. To expand a bit on the piece about Facebook groups or other online communities, the safety is very different in each group, and even sometimes on each thread. On the end of seeking out consultation, certainly, I call it going to the hive mind, can be helpful. But in the Facebook groups, you can't share any kind of identifying information because the screenshot test from TIP, you know, like you need to make sure that if your client saw a post, they wouldn't see it. But also, there are so many voices and so many people, and it's not face-to-face. And so you can get there can be some really unsafe spaces where people are yelling at you, it's unethical and how dare you do that and that kind of stuff. And so I think really having kind of a personal consultation, whether it's one-on-one with a consultant, whether it's in a consultation group, however it is in a safe space. So you can really dig into these issues without fear of being harassed and harangued and told that you're wrong, I think is so important because then the conversations either go away or go behind closed doors with people kind of in their own little thought bubble, you know, like their their own little group that's going to tell them, you did the right thing. And it's like, well, maybe you didn't. And you want to have people that can challenge you, that can really understand the laws and ethics around it and can help you to really sort through it. Because I've seen a lot of these conversations just go off the rails on these Facebook groups. Whereas if you've curated and selected the people in your consultation group, if you seek out consultation from a trusted advisor, like I think those things can be extremely helpful and are required. I mean, is it ethical that you that you have seek consultation? Is that in the eth- ethics, Kurt? <laughs> yes, it is. At, at least. <laughs> oh, good. It is. That's a that's a that's ethical. <laughs> this is also part of being involved in these groups. Is that when you do see things coming up that are blatantly against ethics codes, and we talked a little bit about this and the episode of our take on texts about the California BBS's expert witness who was saying that therapists should not be consulting with other therapists. <laughs> and was <laughs> That was just so ridiculous. <laughs> that there was an ethical imperative not to do that. And this is one of those situations where uh, thankfully the California Association of Marriage and Family Therapists did work with the BBS on this this is actually in the ethics code that therapists should consult with each other. So there is an opportunity for some of these professional organizations to stand in when it does become a legal issue. But yeah, this is where you do need to have people and probably the more mixed the group is, the better it is. So the better the viewpoints that you can get in being able to come up with a more robust answer. Yeah. And I think diversity of, of thought and opinion are extremely important but I go back to safety is really, really critical. And I think people who get so upset that you've 
stepped across a line or they read something and it really sparks something, I think they need to trust those instincts as the person that that posts and says, that's unethical. I think it is important to step back, take a deep breath and understand, is this something I need to say? But I think getting into the the kind of I'm not, it's not trolling. I think people are doing it from a good place, but getting into this place where people are, are shouting angry missives into a Facebook group, I think that doesn't feel helpful. Yeah. You know, and I don't think that if you were to have a, an ethics inquiry or a legal inquiry printing out a Facebook thread of what people said is going to support you in the decision that you made. So <laughs> I think it is important to make sure that you're getting legitimate consultation and potentially documenting it. You know, I think being able to have, you know, if there is a a challenging thing that's coming up where you're really facing some different laws and ethical issues, I think it's important to to document consultation, not in necessarily the client's chart, (laughs) but I think it's important that you really are very thoughtful and deliberate in how you approach the decisions that you make, especially when they're dicey, especially when they're in the gray and very complicated, but don't pull back from those things. We need to face those things. And when you do see people who are imposing their own personal values under the guise of ethics or under the guise of clinical Mm -hmm. judgment, really, if you're listening to this podcast, you're a professional in behavior change. (laughs) <laughs> you you should be able to create the behavior change around these people, have the confidence to be able to supportively help them identify that they're coming from a personal values place, not an ethics place. And this is probably the most likely people who are going to argue with you on the internet in the first place, but <laughs> pointing out to them that really, I'm a fan of if they're claiming something's unethical, have them do the work, have them show the ethics that they're trying to cite. But you're a professional in changing people's behavior. This is one of the things where you can take that stand, have the confidence to do that. You have my support in doing that because (laughs) it makes the whole community better when we're all talking from the same place. And I think it's something where you can do it from a very focused place, a place of wanting to learn, and you can do it from a place of gotcha. So (laughs) cite the ethical code, dude. (laughs) So I think it's something where my entreaty to all of us is let's come from a place of collaboration and learning and say, can you cite the ethics code? Because I'm, that's not something I've heard before. I would love to read that. Now, that can come across as sarcastic and gotcha too. And I think that's why online communication (laughs) is not necessarily the best places to have these conversations, but it can be a place where we can have some bigger conversations and open up those conversations in our individual consultation groups in the the conversations that we have with our colleagues. So I don't, I don't want to say like, let's not try to navigate the the Facebook groups because I think that would be the same. Do it. That would be the same as saying, that's an ethical and running away. But I do want us to, to really be thoughtful about how we approach these things, because if we can have those conversations in a way that really opens up us being able to live as whole person therapists, us being able to really navigate through the divisive different ways that people are viewing therapy, society, you know, all that stuff. If we can start having these conversations or continue having these conversations in a very positive, collaborative way, we can really start sorting through some of this stuff. Because I I think if we just run away or we just yell and scream at each other, it's just not going to work. 
So we've made reference to a number of different things. You can find those in our show notes, and that is available on our website, mtsgpodcast.com. You can also find uh, our consultation if if some of these things come up for you and you need some consultation. That's also at mtsgpodcast.com. It's the 50-minute hour, and we love to support you in making some really good decisions. So as you can see, Katie just unethically spoke over me. And... (laughs) (laughs) While you're on our website, also check out the Therapy Reimagined Conference coming up here in October 2018 in the Los Angeles area. 14 CEUs over two days. Our wonderful platinum sponsor, Simple Practice, is helping us to put this on. And we're having two days where we're crafting better clinicians. And until next time, I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months.